This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. With more than 85 years' experience, Russell Investments is a leading global solutions partner dedicated to helping investors reach their long-term goals. Russell Investments specialises in multi-asset solutions that combine asset allocation, capital market insights, factor exposure, manager research and portfolio implementation. For more information, visit russellinvestments.com.au. Welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. Today, I'm joined by Paul Edelman from Russell Investments and Chris Ogilvie from Invest Blue. We're going to be talking about the outlook for the US economy and US markets, and certainly uh, quite a few interesting topics to go through today. Perhaps, Chris, can I start with you and just ask sort of what sort of things clients are asking about at the moment? Um, maybe not necessarily just with the US focus, what sort of topics are a front and centre of their minds. I think, David, the the major thing is obviously the conflict in in the Ukraine at the moment, and I think we've been in an environment without any major conflict involving you know serious world powers for some time. So it's both concerning you know from a humanitarian point of view, but also for investors with markets uh, reacting in traditional volatile way to to conflict. So um, that's a particular issue, and I think the other thing that people are conscious of too is the you know, the rise of inflation and the talk of interest rates rising, you know, certainly more quickly than they had been proposed uh, only just a matter of months ago. So they're probably the two big things people have got uh, top of mind at the moment with markets. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And Paul, I know, you know, inflation and interest rates, big topic in the the US. And, um, you know, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the Ukraine later, but I suppose the upfront question is, do you see inflation as being a sort of short-term thing? People have talked about supply chain issues and the like, or do you think it's something that's baked in and maybe going to be around for longer? I guess the the complicated answer is it's a little bit of both. Um, For the last 12 months, I'd say by and large, it's mostly been a, a transitory phenomenon in the United States where the lion's share of the inflation overshoot has been very concentrated and driven by durable goods items. So with a lot of Americans stuck at home, consumer demand has been very concentrated on items like buying new TVs, buying furniture, buying automobiles. Um, So incredible demand in a small area of the economy. And those same areas have also been roiled by supply chain bottlenecks. So if you kind of decompose core CPI inflation in the United States, it's running at around 6% right now, which is obviously way too high. Right. Half of that is being driven by durable goods alone. And um, that's a very unusual phenomenon and is likely to moderate over time as supply chains eventually heal. I guess we've gotten more concerned at the margin in just the last month or two because we're starting to see some more sticky inflation emerge now as well. And in particular, that's coming from the strength of the U.S. labor market, which is arguably about as hot as it's been in the post-World War II period. And we're now seeing U.S. wage inflation running at around 6%. Um, And that's incredibly high from a historical perspective and is really challenging the Fed's sort of conviction around their 2% 
price stability target. Um, and so that's creating some more challenges over the medium term. So we ultimately think inflation rates should moderate as the durable goods issue resolves itself in the year ahead. But the wage piece is becoming more concerning and I think getting the Federal Reserve's uh, attention right now. Right. So uh, certainly not hanging around the 6%, but you still see it ab- above the Fed's 2% for the next little while. That's right. So around the end of this year, we're thinking core PC inflation, which is the measure that they focus the most on, will probably be around two and a quarter percent. And so that's a significant moderation from where we are now, but still a little bit too high for them over the medium term. Right, right. I guess that does take us to the to the interest rate outlook. I mean, Ukraine aside, perhaps we, we can talk a lot about that in a moment. That um, you know, People have been getting fairly aggressive on what they think the Fed might do this year. Um, what's the Russell Investment view of, of the Fed? I do think they're going to be hiking interest rates here in pretty short order. They, at the end of the day, have two main objectives, which is to keep the U.S. economy at full employment and to achieve price stability of 2% inflation. And they're probably at or beyond full employment and definitely beyond where they'd like to be on inflation right now. And so there's a really strong impetus from them to hike interest rates. And so our view is they will... uh, kind of embark on liftoff at their meeting in a couple of weeks in March. I don't think that's a very heroic forecast anymore because um, <laughs> Chair Powell was talking in front of Congress just yesterday, and he said exactly that, that he's going to uh, put forth a proposal to hike rates by 25 basis points. So I think that is very squarely uh, in the price at this point. The, the bigger question for investors is probably how much the Fed delivers cumulatively over the entirety of 2022. And um, in that context, our baseline is that they'll ultimately deliver around four rate hikes this year. The market is priced for six. Um, So we're a little bit more conservative than the market. And it's really based on an expectation that over time, the inflation pressures should moderate a little bit. And that will allow the Fed to to slow down as we get into the, the second half of 2022. So definitely hikes here and now, probably March, May, and then June, and as we get into uh, late 2022, uh, the Fed potentially slowing down the pace a little bit. Right, right. And I know the, um, I mean, Mr. Powell made comments, and we've seen here in Australia our own Reserve Bank making similar comments that given what's going on in Ukraine, they might sort of take a little bit longer or, or think a bit more carefully about what they're going to do. Do you think at the moment that that's likely to have an impact on the outlook for Fed hikes? It certainly creates more uncertainty for them. Um, And and the way Powell characterized it in front of Congress is he still wants to hike rates, but they're going to do it cautiously and not try to inject more uncertainty into what is a a very uncertain picture. And so I think there's a a couple of things the Fed is going to be focused on here. Probably most notably is just how much uh, commodity prices and energy prices in particular have spiked globally. That creates a little bit of inflation in the short term, but it also creates some question marks about how the U.S. consumer might respond to higher energy prices, which are basically a form of a tax. And so they're going to be looking really closely at probably the consumer data here over the next three to six months for any signs of damage. Uh, And if they were to see it, I I think that would uh, bias them to want to slow down a little bit. So I think on, on balance, it's probably a little bit dovish, but the intent is to, to carry forward and just be really careful around the data 
as it comes through from those risk factors. Right, right. Thank you. But Chris, I guess, you know, high interest rates and high inflation, something that a lot of clients maybe have never seen or certainly older clients haven't seen for several decades. Is is that um, sort of making them more nervous as people just don't know how markets are going to react? Yeah, I think so, David. I, I, I think there's a bit of a disconnect between, you know, in, from a client's perspective uh, as to the interest rates they experience on their bank deposits or the loans that they pay versus the bond yields rising. So, you know, your typical client is is not understanding necessarily of that disconnect, but, you know, those that have been around before, you know, and had mortgages in the 70s or the 80s are fully aware of the higher interest rates and, you know, what the 70s delivered uh, with obviously inflation. So um, you are right though, there's a whole host of people that have only been used to, you know, uh, rates effectively decreasing over time causing that sort of wealth effect that they've enjoyed. Uh, and inflation's, you know, a new a new beast that many people are trying to understand what, in, what impacts it's going to have in the real world. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, you, you mentioned the market pricing in perhaps up to six Fed hikes, which is more aggressive than, than Russell thinks. So I mean, does that make you a bit more positive on bonds, for instance? Do you think they've, they've priced in too much maybe? We're not particularly bearish on bonds. I think that's a little bit more of a, a consensus view to think interest rates are likely to rise sharply uh, given the, the high inflation environment. But if the Fed is proceeding, but proceeding cautiously and inflation rates do moderate, um, the U.S. 10-year bond today at around, call it 1.8 or 1.9% is in the vicinity of where we estimate its fair value to be against a backdrop of pretty weak uh, trend economic performance in the United States, aging demographics, um, et cetera. So our preferred stance on sort of duration exposure or government bonds in the United States is to be pretty close to our long-term strategic targets to be, to be around neutral. Um, I think bonds are not a particularly attractive return driver in multi-asset portfolios right now, um, given real interest rates are negative. But they do still have an important role to play in terms of diversification if something goes wrong and we were to have an economic recession, if it were to be driven by geopolitics or, or something else unexpected to happen. And I think that that role in portfolios is still uh, very important today. So, yeah, we're, we're sitting here pr- pretty close to home in terms of desired duration exposure uh, around government bonds. Okay, okay. And um, I, you, you mentioned there, Paul, that there's some sort of weaker macro drivers in the U.S. demographics and so on. But I mean, do you still see the sort of very strong growth, low unemployment we're seeing at the moment continuing for a while? Do you have a positive outlook? Or Yeah, I, I think 2022 should still be a very good year for the U.S. economy. Um, and a lot of that's driven by the strength of household and corporate balance sheets here in the States. Uh, if you're looking at the consumer, they're sitting on almost double digit household income growth right now, driven by the strong wage gains that we talked about, but also very excellent job growth. Um, so that's a, a really nice, important, positive pillar for the consumer, which drives about 70% of econo- economic activity in the US. Um, and the corporate sector is in good shape too. Uh, and this is a global phenomenon, but uh, in the U.S. last year, we had 
almost 50% earnings growth for S&P 500 index companies. And with that excellent earnings, companies are now flush with cash and have a lot of ability to invest. And I think, frankly, a need to invest given uh, the supply chain challenges that we're seeing globally. Mm-hmm. So with a, with a healthy consumer and a healthy corporate sector, our expectation is that we'll have around 3.5% real GDP growth this year in the U.S., which is well in excess of that weaker long-term trend due to demographic issues. So ultimately, yes, we're, we're thinking this will be a, a quite good year for um, the U.S. economy in 2022. So the uh, geopolitics aside, you, are you positive on, on equities? Do you see that it's a time perhaps in the off the falls we've seen recently to, to add risk perhaps? I think the... Um, Equity outlook is reasonably positive over the medium term. Um, Valuations are quite rich, but we're in this stage of the business cycle now with pretty healthy economic and earnings growth that equities should be able to deliver something around uh, what they're delivering in terms of earnings. So if we have an expectation going forward for 3.5% real GDP growth and maybe a bit better than that high single-digit earnings growth, um, U.S. equity markets probably can deliver uh, a mid to high single digit return outcome uh, going forward. I think at the margin, we're probably getting more interested uh, in the current environment of geopolitical tension because we're starting to see more pessimism come through in market psychology and investor psychology. And, and whenever that happens, um, it tends to be a really good sign of um, forward meaningfully positive equity market performance. So I think that view around the cycle looking pretty good, coupled with some pessimism in the market are the sort of two positive ticks that that have us leaning uh, positive in terms of the equity market outlook here. Okay, thanks. And Chris, do you, um, do you see that sort of pessimism or concern growing among your clients around the equity market outlook? Uh, probably not yet, David. I think there's you know, people have weathered the storm pretty well during the, the volatility uh, in the COVID period, especially when, you know, COVID uh, first came out. So, and they've seen the benefit of, you know, persevering and staying true to the course and, and the rebounds that have occurred. So, and there's probably a little bit more unease at the moment because of the nature of what's driving markets. I, I think the inflation and interest rates are beyond people's control, but certainly the, the geopolitical risks are, are quite worrying for people. Having said all that, um, whilst worry is there, certainly not seeing any signs of, you know, people panicking or or, or, or behaving the wrong way at this stage. Okay, and uh, Paul, we we've talked about earlier about how you know, a lot of people haven't seen inflation at these sort of levels or it hasn't been around for for several decades even. Um, how do you see equity markets performing if we have extended period of, of higher inflation? Is it a positive or a negative? It, it ultimately depends on what's happening with growth at the same time. So if the inflation is being driven by really strong demand, as has been the case for the better part of the last 18 months, uh, in those kinds of environments, equities can offer a, a pretty reasonable inflation hedge for investors when companies have pricing power and and earnings are coming through. Um, Where that starts to break down is if we were to transition back into an environment closer to the the 1970s, one of 
stagflation where you have high inflation and weak growth at the same time. Um, in that kind of scenario, um, equities are likely to sell off in addition to a whole host of other um, asset classes. Um, net net, as I kind of discussed, in an environment of moderate uh, moderating inflation and reasonable economic growth, we think that's a pretty fav- favorable environment for for equity market performance. Right, right. And um, I mean, looking at other asset classes, um, that some people suggest that there's inflation protection in real assets, you know, property, infrastructure, things like that. To, is that something you would you would favour? Yeah, we do like um, investments in real assets here over the medium term, and they've actually had some pretty good demonstrated protection to inflation concerns year to date as well. Um, if you think about global equities so far in 2022, they're down ballpark 8%. Um, REITs are outperforming equities by about 100 basis points, and global listed infrastructure is closer to flat year to date. And so much, much more resilient than global equities. Um, and so we think that um, protection and hedge profile of re- real assets is a, an important contextualizer going forward. Um, and a lot of it's just driven by the, the flavor of those asset classes. Many infrastructure assets have pricing that is explicitly linked to inflation yeah. uh, and infrastructure subsectors like um, energy transportation, uh, have really nice inflation characteristics as well. So um, when we kind of look at the space, yes, it's a good inflation hedge. And what we're observing in terms of the valuations of REITs and infrastructure, we're seeing a little bit of a discount relative to global equities on things like a price to earnings basis. So that valuation edge coupled with the uh, inflation characteristics does make them a pretty attractive asset class to us here over the over the medium term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of our toll roads here in Australia have direct CPI-linked pricing, which is great for the toll road owners, but maybe not so good for those of us that drive on them at the moment. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, do, do you, our clients have much exposure to these sort of assets we've talked about, like infrastructure and um, you know, commercial property and the like? Yeah, increasingly so, David. I think people are attracted by the things they understand that they can touch and feel and drive past and and look mm. at, and, and and also, you know, in some cases, those unlisted assets give them that uh, that comfort that they've got a portion of their portfolio potentially that's not uh, exhibiting, you know, the, the volatility of listed markets. So I think it is something that clients have got a strong appetite for, and certainly does form a, a, an important part of a portfolio. All right. I mean, we've touched briefly on on geopolitics and and what's going on in in Ukraine and so on. And I guess it's still a, a, a very much who knows where it's going or, or how bad things are going to get. But can we maybe just touch, Paul, on what you think implications could be for for global markets and even for economies if things get worse or, or the conflict is extended? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's. I think it's a horrible situation in Ukraine. For markets, the immediate reaction, as we've talked about, is one where we're all having to think about new uncertainties here that we haven't considered in a very long time. And financial markets don't like uncertainty. So I think it has driven some negative pressure in global financial markets. In terms of implications, 
Um, the obvious ones are that Russia is likely to be in very bad shape here economically in the year ahead. Um, we would expect their economy to get clobbered by the sanctions from the West, the shutout of their banking system from the West, and a number of global multinational businesses basically turning off capital flows to the region. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, it feels like one of these classic sort of sudden stop episodes that a lot of emerging markets have had to deal with in, in decades past. So I think for Russia specifically, very negative. For the global economy, exposures to Russia have decreased meaningfully um, since 2014 around the Crimea annexation and sanctions from that time. So the global spillovers are probably much more modest. Um, the two risks we're thinking about uh, as scenarios are, number one, if the war were to escalate to NATO countries, that would be quite bad, but I think is a low expectation probability from most investors and geopolitical experts that we speak to. The other more pressing one is what the spike in commodity prices and energy prices means for developed markets. Um, and so we, we're seeing now crude oil move well above $100 a barrel. And I think that creates open questions, what kind of damage there might be for consumers in places like the United States and Europe. And on, on that issue, we're probably getting a little bit closer to the danger zone. Um, my expectation would be the U.S. should be quite resilient here, given um, the increasing energy independence uh, the American economy has developed over the years due to the shale revolution and other issues. But in Europe, uh, they're much more dependent and much more dependent, particularly on Russian oil and gas. And so I think there we're probably already getting to the point where investors need to think about a percentage point or, or two of downgrades to their economic growth expectations in the region. Um, for the global economy as a whole, I, we're still thinking this will be a reasonably good growth year. But um, yes, some some headwinds, particularly um, outside of the U.S. Uh, in terms of economic consequences from this. And have you, have you been able to have a look at how markets have performed in uh, in the past when we've had these sort of geopolitical happenings, if it, assuming there's not sort of any major extension? Yeah. So we looked at major geopolitical scares going all the way back to the 1940s. And what you tend to find is an initial fairly large sell-off in financial markets as investors grapple with the uncertainty. Um, but over time, um, and this can happen pretty quickly, but over time, you tend to get a, a pretty quick and full recovery in global equity markets on average in the span of just a month or two. So I think that's the sort of historical norm that there's a fear factor and you get over it and global fundamentals are ultimately what prevails. And so I think that casts a message of one where you probably want to stay invested and stick to your plan during times of stress and fear in markets. And at the margin, as we were talking about before, if, if we were to see wide-scale panic in the market, we may even want to consider actually going overweight equities. We're not quite there yet. We're seeing pessimism, not panic in terms of market psychology, uh, but increasingly getting interested if, if the volatility were to persist and potentially even amplify in the weeks ahead. Right, right. Chris, is that, um, you know, does that require a lot of hand-holding of clients or you think that clients are sort of aware of this, that it's often just a short-term 
drop and you know, staying staying put's probably the best strategy. Yeah, David. I think look the work you do with your clients over a long period of time. It's there's an element of education, mentoring, sort of coaching along the way, and and people hopefully have have uh, have got the message. Having said that, um, these times can be unnerving, and I think you know people trying to time markets is fraught with danger. All the statistics will tell you that. Probably gives you two chances to get it wrong: when to get out and when to get back in. And <laughs> as we often say to people, the safest place to be on a roller coaster is buckled up and enjoying the ride, and um, you get through the other end safely. It's not uh, not the time to <laughs> unbuckle when you're on the roller coaster. Very good, very good. I think one maybe one final topic that occurs to me, and we've um, we've got our portfolio management conferences coming up soon, and um, one topic that comes up. In, in some of those is climate change. And I was just thinking, you know, with the spikes we've seen in energy prices, Paul, and, you know, the oil over $100 a barrel and so on, do you think it's perhaps another driver of for the alternative energy sector that we might see things develop quicker there? I think it creates a, an impetus to try to find energy supply anywhere you can. And um, particularly in Europe, given the strong um, ESG focus in the region. Um, we could be looking at meaningful investments to build out their domestic energy production profile, including alternatives and maybe a reconsideration of nuclear. Um, those kinds of investments could take many years to play out. So it doesn't solve the problem overnight, but I think there'll be sort of increasing interest in that. Um, back here in the United States, um, and this was included in, in President Biden's State of the Union presidential address. Um, I think there's a big interest to try to ameliorate the, the price at the pump and the challenges consumers are facing from higher energy prices. And um, that could include a range of things, but potentially even bringing back more U.S. shale production, which has been quite constrained, frankly, uh, in terms of new investments for the last year or so. And that's that's a little bit of a dirtier flavor of energy investment. But given the hyper-focus on, on politics right now, I think it's a reasonable avenue that um, the U.S. policy administration could likely be considering here. Okay. Look, um, I'm, I'm conscious of time. We've, we've been talking for a while. There's some very interesting topics in there. So I think I just uh, would like to thank... Paul Eitelman from Russell Investments and Chris Ogilvie from Invest Blue. Thank you for your time today. And a reminder that our next podcast in the series coming up soon is looking at duration and global equities. And also a reminder, if you look on the IMAP website, we have our portfolio management conferences coming up soon in both Sydney and Melbourne. Thank you very much. Thank you.